0: Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy.
1: I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode continues my discussion of Grace of Kings with A Fish Trap. This time we're using the exotic and oriental Parade of Wonders that opens the novel to talk about reader expectations and the weight of the single narrative by and about historically marginalized groups and creators. We're going to compare the approaches of Grace of Kings, House of Shattered Wings, which features an immigrant in the midst of ruined magical Paris, and Scalebright, a modern urban fantasy set in Hong Kong full of demons and goddesses. Plot spoilers for Grace of Kings, much less so for the other two books. We'll kick off this fourth, and I think Anti- penultimate episode discussing grace of kings with promises made to the reader and the beginning of the book.
0: Chapter one opens with a parade of wonders. We know that we are in the seventh month in the 14th year of the reign of one bright heaven. I think that doing a sort of month and year based on the reign of a name like one bright heaven conjures to me eastern imperial setting
2: yeah, the year in the reign is really what did it for me, because Western tends to go by the Christian calendar. often also
0: from the reign of a certain king, but but this is not Louis the <laughs> uh, this is this is one bright heaven. it's It's almost immediate. Third paragraph, they're here for the Imperial procession. Um, we mm-hmm. have a fleet of giant imperial airships, battle carts with oxynew draped from the stone throwing arms. Engineers spraying water from ice wagons. We have... Elephants. Elephants. Uh, you've, you've skipped over the maidens gyrating seductively.
2: Yeah, that's... that's
0: Sword twirlers. That, that wasn't the part that, that you were really excited about. The elephants...
2: Well, I like elephants. I mean, yeah. who doesn't like elephants? Actually, that that part about the, the maidens who gyrated seductively kind of made me laugh because I saw so many things on Twitter where people were like, oh, the dancing girls, why does it in your know, blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, hey, you haven't actually watched any Wuxia, have you? You'll have dancing girls who are fully clothed. <laughs> <laughs> like, we have a slightly different measure. So, no, I mean, that's so par for the course with Wuxia that I was just like, yeah, yeah, okay.
0: After that, we get a composition by the great imperial scholar, which happens to also tell us what all of our kingdoms are. Mm-hmm. Decorative knots meant to evoke logograms for prosperity and luck.
2: Mm-hmm. We get the long silk banners embroidered with seams. That silk right there is is also an indication as opposed to say, wool, mm-hmm. linen. And then we get the emperor. And his pagoda. I had missed that, yes. The only mention in the entire book of a pagoda. It's also the only place there are gyrating dancing girls. Yeah. Or yeah. I think elephants. There's an awful lot of imagery in this opening part that just doesn't show up anywhere else.
0: Yes, I think that's that's really key. So there's both expectation setting. Like, like very clearly you read that parade of wonders and we are in an exotic oriental landscape. Mm-hmm. And I, I say both of those words. I mean, I feel like Oriental carries all the weight of Orientalism, which I've not actually read, but Said's critique yeah. and point about the ways that the West consumes and fetishizes the East and exotic, I think very similarly, there are ways in which this is kind of set up as the other and certainly set up for Western American readers as the other.
2: I mean, this this is taking it up. Several steps, mm-hmm. and that was part of why I skimmed a lot of this opening part. But on the other hand, you know, I imagine somebody who who normally reads medieval fantasy, which does not usually have parades with five hundred people and singing and elephants, may have been like, "Oh my goodness, I have never read anything like this before. This is so cool."
0: And I will say, as someone who tends not to read for detail very much, I tend to be skimming. I tend to be thinking about. What are the ideas going on in this about nobility or Chosen One? Or how does the magic work? How does the magic work? I really like to think about. But who are my characters? What is their skin color? What is the setting that they're in? Are they bleak landscapes or dense jungles? I don't notice those sorts of things. I am someone who sort of needs to be hit in the head with this level of detail
2: the level of detail here is it, it is orientalized that's you know and it and it feels very intentional and and i think there is that abrupt shift when you get through this chapter it's like all right there there was your
0: that's the thing
2: there was your bit i hope you're happy now we're done let's move on with the actual story <laughs>
0: Even even within that first chapter you get things like Cooney laughing and saying, This is what I call a view, I can see the attraction of being an emperor. So he's already kind of undercutting and, and
3: mm-hmm.
0: making making a bit of mockery of the parade. But yeah, after you get through chapter one and the assassination attempt, you get to Mata and it's like, okay, we're we're in a real setting. Yeah that deals with the fact that it's been recently conquered and lots of people have been killed and lots of other people have been taken away from their homes to work on building the roads and the great monuments that the emperor wants built. And we're no longer sort of flying overhead watching a parade of wonders. We're on the ground with people tending bars and trying to figure out how to pay their bills and dealing with imperial occupying soldiers.
2: Which is a nice shift in some ways because it does feel like for the reader who, who hit that second chapter and it was like, okay, you know, one chapter of opulent Orientalism that I, I'm happy I have now satisfied my quotient of the unfamiliar. It is a shift that I think sort of says, okay, here's the fantasy, both the fantasy of the emperor's parade and at the same time a fantasy of here is this fantastical China that in your head, fed by Western media's interpretation, is what you think it was like. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of that, you've got the emperor stomping his feet because, you know, his legs are going to sleep. And then you have the assassin on top of everything else and it's not a graceful kind of rescue of the emperor it's it's awkward and I think somebody gets shoved under a chair and there's yeah chaos everywhere and and it is a breakdown both of his parade and of this literary facade that's been created as it literally breaks down in front of us right and then all of that is kind of wiped away off of the screen now let's introduce you to the story of how it really is And the people as they really exist outside of this one day spectacle.
0: I think that I, I mostly agree, but I would say that, for instance, we go from the procession to Mata. He's not, he's not Cooney. He's not a person on the street. He is a person who is being raised to be a hero. And we Mm -hmm. we go from the procession to someone being raised to be a hero to Cooney and then fairly shortly after that the prophecy of the fish. So we go we go a little bit gently down.
2: I feel like it's more a series of veils. We have the we have like the that. outer, and then you tear that away, and you have another layer inside where it's like, okay, this is still kind of, there's a myth-making going on in the second chapter. That's what you're mm-hmm. seeing is the process of the myth that results in those sorts of parades. Mm-hmm. And then you take that away, and you have Cooney, who is a myth-making in his own right, but in a less neatly packaged way. Mm -hmm. These three, the emperor who's going to go the way of emperors, dead, and Mata who's going to rise and then fall, and Kuni who's going to rise. I think on one of the writing excuses, when I remember Mary Robinette Kowal talking about, just point out a single detail and suddenly you have a characterization that is radically different. Yes. You know, a man sees a woman sitting in a chair. And, and so you have this very simple sentence. Mm-hmm. But when she follows up with the chair was you know, draped in a Baroque fabric and had a slightly Edwardian curve to its legs. You're like, this is somebody who knows furniture. He's not actually noticing the woman. So you have gotten detail there, but at the same time, you've also gotten a very definite characterization. And that's what I mean by, yes, you can have a parade, you can have a lot of stuff going on, but that first chapter is loaded with keywords that blare out neon signs on the side of the road that say, hey, look, exoticism. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have the dancing girls, we have the elephants, we have the pagodas, we have the logograms, we have the silk banners. It's almost like the author took a list of the things that are obligatory mm-hmm. in faux Chinese literature and just went, bam, 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 went right down the list and knocked every single one of them down and said, all right, I got them all out of the way. I think he could have easily had a parade that had basically the same content, but with some judicious different choices in his details, we would have had a very different impression, yet still just as wondrous. yes. The author is dealing with preconceptions on the part of the readers. Mm -hmm. The question here, above and beyond how the rest of the story unravels, the question is, how did this author, knowing ahead of time, that people are going to look at the book and they're going to see Dandelion, maybe is that a chrysanthemum on the cover, and his surname, and they're going to say, oh, this must be something awesomely Chinese, Look, And and they're going to go into it expecting dragons and mandarins and whatever other nonsense that they've Mm -hmm. swallowed from Hollywood. And he handed it to them on a silver platter right down to the pagoda and then tears it all away bit by bit. Mm -hmm. And that is a very different maneuver from the other two books. House of Shattered Wings, Elliot does what I would normally expect, which is she sort of cozens you in sideways. And so by the time you get to anything that would overlap with Orientalized, you have already been situated in the world. You have a point of view through which you're seeing it, and she sort of slides it in into the middle of it.
0: Well, and I think in House of Shattered Wings, it unfolds much more slowly, in part because the setting is a ruined Paris. And the first thing that our character from Vietnam does is is kind of dispel magic that he shouldn't be able to dispel. But we first just have the clue that he's... From somewhere else, yeah. I don't think at first it's even from somewhere else. It's just he can do something that he shouldn't. no one should be able to do. And then later we figure out, okay, that's because of where he was from, and there are different paths to immortality, and we, we start to get more and more layers built up about him and his backstory and understanding that we have... Interestingly, in this case, an Easterner looking at a Western setting and a Western culture. So we have the outsider looking in kind of from the other side.
2: Philippe is, she's not coy about it. She does tell you, I mean, within the first two or three pages, she mentions being an immortal and Anam. China, France broke it into these different pieces. Mm -hmm. Anam was the one at the South. But even without knowing that, it's still... This is not a Western name. This is clearly not a Western place. Mm -hmm. She places it in 1914, the Great Houses War. Definitely as opulent as Ken's opening chapter, but in a very different way with different details. Yes. You know he's an outsider. You know he is coming from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. but she really doesn't dig too much into it. And it seems to be less a matter of she's not digging into it so much as the character, the character's perspective is, I don't want to think about that. And so it doesn't feel like the author is going, oh, uh, I'm, I'm just going to sidestep this question that's forming in your head so much as the character saying, no, 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 let's not, let's not go there.
0: Yeah. You are more comfortable saying the author than I am. I feel like the text well, yeah. The, the text, text chooses not to engage. I agree. The character is pretty pretty interested in not thinking about what he has lost, and yet at the same time, I think that there would be ways to engage more with the fact that he is from from Vietnam, and but
2: I think I think that's the key, though, because I, I think there's something going on that's that's a difference in terms of what those details are that get exposed. Yes. If you are okay, so so let's take being French, being European as Somewhat vaguely on a civilization level equivalent to Western slash Anglo slash American since being American readers. We don't have an experience of either being colonized or immigrating across a massive distance to a different country within our living memory. So to us, it's an object of fascination. It's here's somebody who's come from somewhere else. Oh, let's find out all about them, which is how you have Americans who meet immigrants and they're like, oh, do tell us all about where you came from. And and I have immigrant friends who, if people remark on their accent, they're like, I don't want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, not wanting to be marked out as different. It could be they left a war-torn country. It could be, you know, there was... There was some reason they had to flee, but because we haven't gone through that and we don't understand the weight that that causes. And I think there are books that you can read where the author doesn't understand that. And so they're like, let's dig into this character and, and give you more details. Whereas the text in The House of Shattered Wings respects the immigrant's experience. And so when Philippe, when the story requires it, you find out where Philippe came from and more of what he went through. But at the point where the character's like, I don't want to talk about it. The text right. does not look at him from the outside, but understands him from the inside.
0: I I think that is a, is a really excellent way of making that point. I feel like we are talking around an assumed audience. <laughs> like, I kind of want to get a little specific about this. I think that we are saying that both grace of kings and house of shattered wings were written with the expectation that they were going to be writing an unfamiliar setting and culture but one that had kind of a weight of preconceptions already established they were going to try to write a truth that was different from the preconceptions established and they were expecting to be writing to a white american audience that would be unfamiliar with the culture they were writing about you know unfamiliar with philippe's culture or unfamiliar with China and Chinese history, but would have lots of expectations and being used to view those kinds of settings as just sources of wonder and fascination. I think we are saying that, that both of these books seem to be trying to mediate that, and both kind of reset expectations in some way, or deal with those reader expectations in some way, while also writing the culture and the truth that they're trying to write.
2: I think there's different maneuvers going on here because in some ways the experiences are different. Mm -hmm. The background with which the text is having a dialogue is different. So Grace of Kings is busy talking to the myth of a nation, whether this is Greek or Chinese, and how this myth is created. And taking that myth and reflecting it and expanding it and digging into parts and dismantling other parts, whereas House of Shattered Wings is more interested in the experience of the immigrant. And so while there's an exotification of the other, which in Grace of Kings is the entire text, if you think of history as the exotic other, the the past being a foreign country, then it's... How we look back and take that apart. But House of Shattered Wings is very much, even the angels themselves are immigrants to an unfamiliar country. And while they may have been immigrants who landed with a great deal of privilege, they themselves also have that disassociation, this, this separation between where they once were and the place they knew they belonged and this place that they are now. And they happen to end up on top, Whereas Philippe, who knows fairly well where he was before he came to this place, mm-hmm. he's ended up on the...
0: What is it, the difference between the immigrant and the expatriate?
2: Yeah, I don't think Paris was the exotified part. I can see how readers, especially those of default, meaning unmarked, white, western Angla, might instinctively be unsure how to react or feel, in that Philippe was introduced as a sympathetic point of view, but then promptly the other point of view characters other him, left and right. Whenever he is seen through the eyes of another character, he is othered and marked as something that is so completely alien. Yes. Which carries the reader along into that exiled, isolating experience of being othered, when Mm -hmm. you're seeing Sue Philippe's point of view, which in my opinion was the main brilliance of the narrative path because you are now seeing those characters that you might instinctively say, hey, those are Western European Anglo characters like myself. I can relate to those characters. And yet the narrative is turning it around in head such that you are relating to Philippe. You are being put in his shoes and you understand how it feels to be othered. And then when you switch back to the point of view that you should be able to relate to, you are othering the very point of view that only a chapter before you were sympathizing with. Right. It humanizes Philippe. Yes. Now, when you are seeing him through the eyes of somebody who is othering him, it feels like, no, 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 othering is to dehumanize. But I related to this character. I, he was humanized for me. And so to have a character other him feels wrong. I'm not only empathizing with him, I get why he's so pissed off.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. The word that I picked up on there was the disconnect, that I felt like having Philippe and having Philippe presented sympathetically and then having the other characters see Philippe the way they did and other him did give me a sense of disconnect and made it harder to identify with anyone else. It made me realize that sort of everyone there
2: is disconnected.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think having Philippe in the story was really essential to the overall experience of, of House of Shattered Wings.
2: The one who has been colonized is damaged by it. Yes. And the one who colonizes is also damaged by it mm-hmm. because their world has just gotten smaller because they have literally cut off parts of the world from being seen as human. Right. And while the damage is different, it is not a system that leaves anybody untouched. Both texts, both Grace of Kings and the House of Shattered Wings are dealing with how we orientalize. But I think Grace of Kings is dealing with how we orientalize and think we know the other And House of Shattered Wings is dealing with how we orientalize in order to dehumanize
0: I think one thing that's really different between Grace of Kings and House of Shattered Wings, it felt to me like they both showed similar expectations about readers and the notion that part of what they were going to have to mediate and be in dialogue with was reader expectations. But where... House of Shattered Wings is a more or less familiar setting with a character from the East. And I don't know that I would ever really use the word kind of exotic with the full connotations there. But, like, we have this character who is brought into a Western setting, whereas with with Grace of Kings, what is going on is, I feel like, an invitation to readers to come into this Eastern setting. And so the way you have to deal with the fact that we, the readers, probably have a burden of expectations that we're bringing is show and then deconstruct and move away from those
2: expectations. And that's, that's where I think the difference is. I think The Grace of Kings is assuming from the start that the story itself will be othered. right. So it presents to you what you think you're going to get, that other distance, and then it breaks that down bit by bit. Whereas House of Shattered Wings doesn't assume that there's a distance between it and its reader, it shows you that othering that exists within its text. Mm-hmm. The reason I wanted to also compare Scalebright is because I think what's most fascinating about it in contrast to House of Shattered Wings and Grace of Kings is the othering there is assumed... Not to have anything to do with the Orientalism is assumed on the basis of sexuality.
0: Okay, say a little more, because I, I feel like there's just much less burden of reader expectations on both of those axes. Like, I, f- I feel like Skillbright's general approach is, here's my story, deal with it.
2: <laughs> it felt to me as immersive as The House of Shattered Wings. And, and frankly, The Grace of Kings did not feel immersive to me in that respect because grace of kings did start with that here's what you expect and then here's the the myth making and then here we're going to break down and and so in some ways i was not thrown into the deep end in terms of something unfamiliar because what was handed to me was the hollywood spectacle of what's expected scale right it was like diving head first into the deep end. I'm not gonna spoon feed you this. I am I'm not going to hand you what you think you want and deconstruct it. I'm just gonna hand it to you. And then I'm going to deconstruct it in the middle of the story and you just you just gotta stick with it. Well, but
0: I mean deconstruct it. I don't feel especially Scale Bright, I don't feel like there was much
2: That's what I meant by I don't think what got deconstructed was any issue of Orientalism or exotification because Hong Kong was not treated as, here's this place you've never been to and it's so amazing. It was simply, yeah, she's getting on the subway, go home from work. Hong Kong has subways too. The part that needs to be deconstructed is your expectation of the patterns of the romance. What it turns its attention to and lavishes its most attention to is something that is very much a universal human experience of, did I fall in love with the wrong person? And so despite being in a setting that would make most Western people go, this is so unfamiliar, it's like, no, actually the setting is not the issue here. Knowing that English language readers are going to be walking into it with these sets of assumptions, it's a very different way of addressing or not addressing, knowing what your readers are, are going to be thinking.
0: I'm not sure if we mostly agree or not. I see the approach in Scale Bright as in many ways in contrast to the approaches of both House of Shattered Wings and Grace of King. It reads to me like Scalebright is just saying, look, this is the story I want to tell. There's no veil to be pulled away. There's no setting up and then deconstructing of reader expectations in the same way that Brandon Sanderson writing pseudo-medieval Europe doesn't have to worry about introducing castles and the duties that lords have because...
2: Because we already know... Both of those
0: are not really thinking very much about what are my readers going to expect? Do I need to set up some expectations and then deconstruct them so that the reader can get to the story that I want to tell?
2: But I think in some ways, House of Shattered Wings does let Philippe have that same kind of here is simply what it is. It's also kind of difficult in some respects to compare them because you obviously Grace of Kings is the one that has the... It's a completely made-up world. Right.
1: At this point, we've talked, or at least talked around, the ways that we see these three stories addressing the expectations of a white American audience. We also spent some time talking less coherently about how those expectations are shaped and weigh on the authors. The rest of the episode, will be playing some excerpts from that part of the discussion.
2: I think it's gutsy because so often, stories that are written by that non-Anglo-slash-immigrant experience, they constantly have to confront it in some way. There is a huge pressure. If you are writing from that outsider's point of view, you should deliver that exact shadow play so that you can perform your others. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what these three authors are dealing with and they're tackling in their texts is they know based on, you know, their picture or their surname or what they've put in the story or the biography at the end of the book, that readers are going to look at it and say, oh, you are Asian. So therefore, you know, I expect to see Asia. The Asia that's in my head, you know, I should see mandarins and pagodas and dragons. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be at least one chrysanthemum on the cover somewhere. The farther you get away from that unmarked state, you know, a white, heterosexual, Western, English speaking man, the more you have to battle. It's the fact that you're going to be put in this box. Grace of Kings says, Screw you. I've gripped this box the way you expect it, and now I am going to break out piece by piece. House of Shattered Wings says, Let me show you what it's like inside the box, and let me show you what's outside of the box. Mm-hmm. Now, let me put you back in the box and see how, you know, see how that feels. How do you like that? And Scale Bright says, screw you, there is no box. The most dangerous thing that can happen is that we only have one narrative. If there's only one story that they're able to tell, whether it's a story of the immigrant or the fantasy story where it's fake China or or even the Hong Kong where, where everything is so exotified and there's, there's gods in every corner, it is to the detriment of us all.
0: Yes. I think that there is a fourth text out there that may well have been written by a white guy or is more likely a hollywood movie that is <laughs> the uh, the american imperial gaze telling the story of the exotic oriental and entirely unified east because the thing is that if you are from a marginalized background there is another story you can write the fourth story right like if you're mm-hmm. from Anywhere in East Asia, you can write the exotic story and be lauded. Mm-hmm. And if you are an African American author, you can write black suffering. Mm-hmm. Right? Like there are, if you are from Africa, you can write the African story.
2: <laughs> yes, I and mean, you will have to have at least one acacia tree on your cover. Uh, yes, and and the sun, and and that is your one cover that you get, and your one story, and you could be. I think it was Adichie. Talked mm-hmm. about writing a coming to America and writing a story for one of her classes in college, and it was about life back home.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But she's talking about living in a city and catching a cab, and you know, it, it's modern Africa. And her professor graded her down because he said it wasn't African enough.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that is that is the overwhelming single story. And that's where I think it's so important to broadcast and to signal boost these three books and, and other books like Zen Cho's Sorcerer of the Crown as well as the CSR the the anthology that got kickstarted I guess last month
3: mm, yeah. with a
2: selection of Southeast Asian authors or even you know poets like Brian Thawara I think I just said his last name wrong and they say I am not only not going to perform my Asian-ness for you but I am going to define it myself
1: Okay, I'm going to close with a book recommendation that I ran on this program all the way back in June of last year for a book that's finally out. Charlie Jane Anders' All the Birds in the Sky was released this month to a lot of excitement, at least in my section of the interwebs. Here is Aidan Mower's recommendation.
4: I've been reading Charlie Jane Anders' All the Birds in the Sky. It doesn't come out until January 2016, so I feel a little bad bragging about it, but it is. You're, you're mocking uh, all of us and I'm shaking my fist. I know, I know. It's, it's a hotly anticipated book and for good reason. It's absolutely incredible. I haven't been this enraptured by a book since Station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel, which is probably my favorite book of last year. Anders is well known within the science fiction and fantasy community for being the editor in chief. Bio9 for winning Hugo Awards for a short fiction, and this debut novel of hers, which is a weird, warm, heartbreaking, coming-of-age story wrapped up in an end-of-the-world frame, and then sort of bundled up around the idea that brilliant scientists and a uh, talented magic user can sort of coexist and fall in love and save the world, doom the world. It's hard to tell um, all at once. It, It brings in so many... Elements that it should, by all rights, be a mess. It's only 300 pages long. It's just this incredible experience where everything just works. And Anders has this ability with voice to just pull you into the narrative. And as the characters age, the tone and the voice of the novel changes with them. And it's just, there's so much love and passion for endless boundaries of science fiction and fantasy that I just can't stop thinking about it. It's incredible. And I can't wait for more people to read it so I can talk to them about it. Uh, it's a novel all- that you have to talk to other people about. It.
0: Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at Jay Sutton Morse.
1: The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also
3: find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.